2: This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes.
4: All right, yeah, I know, Mister Pop. Mr. Pop no. no. no.
2: no.
5: That's the only thing
2: we
1: have to fear is fear itself. Four score and seven years ago, when in the course of human events, and so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can you can do for your country. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of
5: America. Hello, Roy Field here and happy 2021. Today is our third and final installment from our friends at the Twilight Histories. Now, this third story has been created by Christian Verboven, and his story is about James Monroe and the Barbary Pirates. It was Sean Overton Brady, who on our Facebook group suggested that, how about this as an idea, that Monroe is captured by Barbary Pirates on his way to his diplomatic posting in Paris. Now, very obviously that was before he became president. So that was his go at alternative history. And our friends at The Twilight History have decided to run with that. This is our third and final one, as I've said. So um, on with the show and then check in with us again afterwards for some more news about 10 American presidents. Hi,
2: I'm Jordan Harbour from The Twilight Histories podcast. What you're about to hear is our third and last installment for 10 American Presidents. And I want to give a huge thank you to Roy Field Brown for giving us this chance to showcase our work for you. The concept for today's show comes from your listener, Sean Brady, from the Facebook group. He wrote, Cool idea what you're doing. Well, Thanks, Sean. Here's my idea. Monroe is captured by Barbary pirates on his way to his diplomatic posting in Paris. Go! Well, Sean, your idea was picked up by our very talented Twilight Histories podcaster, Tristan Verboven, who created this startling story for you. Have a listen.
1: It is the summer of 1794 and Joel Barlow is trying his best to read the latest print of Lloyd's shipping list as his carriage bumps and sways. You wouldn't know it by the quaint French countryside as it passes, but France is in the grips of a bloody revolution. The people have risen from all segments of society to rid themselves of an aging, obsolete monarchy and are forming what they hope is a fair and well-thought-out republic. Both the new Republican army and the Loyalist Guard have had to resort to violence and depravity to get where they are right now. To Joel Barlow, an American in France, business is booming. There is a kind of assumed kinship between the two nations. Despite any differences that they may have, they are both revolutionary brothers-in-arms. And shipping supplies to moving armies on both sides has become Monsieur Barlow's prime focus. So when he receives a sealed letter from a general of the Republican Army of the West, he makes his way to meet him at once. An eyeglass scans slowly across the clustered farmhouses and hayfields. Over the gentle rolling hills of the Loire Valley, until it finds the dusty train of a carriage bobbing up the tree-lined avenue leading to the courtyard. The device is snapped shut to reveal a strikingly handsome young man with dark skin and tight, black curls continuing down his cheek into sideburns elegantly brushing up against the stiff, gold-trimmed collar of his uniform. He turns to his attendant. Pas de protocole, he says sternly. le tout With a click step, the attendant backs out of the room, closing the large doors behind him, leaving the room silent. But he is not alone. A man with rough, dark features sits awkwardly in a sumptuous chair, running his tri-point hat between his fingers. And behind him, lurking sloppily about the room, are two swarthy types, dressed in an Eastern style, one of them grinning his rotten, gold teeth, the other giving nothing but a blank, boorish frown. Placing the spyglass carefully in the drawer by the window, the uniformed man exits the room and descends the long hallway, his boots creaking the floor noisily. At the bottom of the broad stairway, he greets his visitor as he arrives in French. And then he nods for his Batman to leave. Welcome to La Grande Jeannie, Monsieur Barlow. Thank you for coming on such short notice. Monsieur David de la Pailleterie, it is an honor to see you again. Never mind these pleasantries, Monsieur Barlow. I am now General Dumas of the Army of the West. But for our purposes, you may call me Alex Dumas. Barlow has the dashing stride of an American, chiseled features and steely eyes and His kerchief cravat is tied smart and tight. He takes his host's hand firmly. General, well, well. If I recall, on our first meeting, Monsieur Dumas, you were a lieutenant colonel in the Black Legion. That was scarcely two years ago. This revolution is bringing out quite a few battlefield promotions. You will find that I merit them, Monsieur. Monsieur. Dumas gracefully motions him to follow as they mount the steps of the opulent chateau. We had plenty of those in our revolution, too, continues Barlow. We are too young to recall, of course. If I'm not mistaken, I was being enslaved on the plantation in Saint-Dominique at the time, chuckles the general grimly. Yes, of course, replies Barlow. It was such an extraordinary rise, this new revolutionary fervor. Atop the stairs, the men stand face to face. Any person who puts his foot in France is no longer a slave, no matter his race. This has been so long before the revolution. Both men push out their chests, gnashing their jaws, and Dumas leads him towards the room and stops in front of the door. I did not call you here to discuss my career, Monsieur Barlow, la politique non plus. He pauses before reaching for the doorknob. Upon our first meeting, you presented me with a letter of introduction, by the former consul in Paris, Monsieur Jefferson. Vous rappelez bien. In it, he described you as a capable man of extraordinary abilities and connections, and an intimate of Monsieur Jefferson himself. You will find, Monsieur Dumas, that I am worthy of all those things. Then I shall now introduce you to a man whose presence here at Chateau Jaunier is known to no one but you and me. He has a message of terrible gravity for you. He opens the door and leads him in. As they enter the Grand Salle, the man stands up hastily, only to be stopped by the hand of one of the two brutes. Voila, Monsieur Joël Barlow says Dumas to the man. He is an American and can bring your message to Washington. Barlow looks around the room inquisitively. Somebody please tell me what this is about. Monsieur Barlow, this is Luigi Giuseppe, first mate of the frigate Minerve. He looks at him gravely. This ship sailed from Boston transporting an American by the name of James Monroe. Ah the new consul, appointed by Mr. Jefferson himself. He's expected to arrive any day. Barlow looks at the man. What news of his passage? The man stands up again, and this time the brutes allow him. Looking over his shoulder nervously, he hands Barlow a silk pocket kerchief monogrammed with J.M. The news I have of Monsieur Monroe is a matter of national attention, sir. Sir. Barlow puts up his hand to stop him and stares down the brutes. Who are these men, he demands. Dumas steps in. These men are inseparable to Monsieur Giuseppe for his duration in France. They arrived with him in La Rochelle on a vessel from Tunis. They are here to see that the terms are properly communicated. The smaller of the two brutes comes to life, revealing at once a ghastly smirk. Barlow pauses for a moment in horror, looking into the desperate eyes of the first mate. A vessel from Tunis! He turns to the general. Why, Monsieur Dumas, these men are Barbary pirates! Pirates! Laughs the corsair through a bog of gold teeth. Yes, monsieur. Pirates! Pirates, yes! (laughs) In the dark hull of a ship, after days of swaying and buckling. Too many days to count, for some days have had no light at all, and others have lasted an eternity. James Monroe has found a way to prop his head to rest in the foul recess of a damp wooden box closes his sore, shallow eyes in search of sleep, and in that tranquil place memories come to his mind. He is at the home of his friend Thomas Jefferson, having breakfast a la Francaise to celebrate his appointment as consul in Paris. There's what kind of revolution they have. who knows what kind of revolution they be having Think of all those before, Think of you, all have those before, before. you have come and had this honor Best for your family best best for there. your family once you're there who knows what kind of who revolution knows what kind, revolution kind of revolution they be having? His mind drifts into another memory, an older one. They are in Richmond at the market, holding the hand of his father, a family of slaves huddled on a platform, his father calling out bids, a man with a stick beating the poor woman as her child is pried from her clutches. He can hear the whizzing of shots overhead, artillery fire in the distance. Monroe rushes below deck to destroy his documents, until the Corsairs burst into the room, climbing the rigging daggers in their mouths. his eyes are thrust open to another horrible spectacle. This one is real. A body is being hoisted by the leg, raised to a winch in the opening above. And besides the holes drilled into the hull, it is the sole source of light, air, and sometimes food. Not enough to lessen the squalor The air is unbreathable. It is unclear how many souls are down here with him. His ghastly leg irons allow him to see no more than the first three layers of
2: bodies across.
1: Shoulder to shoulder with other men, all confined to their filth and darkness. The ship sways, and the briny swamp on the floor occasionally splashes up into their faces speaks. Nobody has spoken for days. Just moans and shrieks of madness that permeate the stench of death. Now the seas have calmed. The heat has done nothing to improve the air. The sea is still. Still enough to hear the splash of the body Ghoulish snarl of the sharks devouring it. Sometime later, the sound of small boats rub up against the port side, and voices call out in Arabic. With scarves covering their faces, some corsairs descend into the filth. With whips and devices built for this sole purpose, they unshackle the bodies and gather them a dozen at a time into a cargo net, where they are hoisted into the light. When it is Monroe's turn, he stumbles with a groan, not having used his legs in weeks then recoils into the blinding sun. Crammed like livestock into the net, he can barely open his eyes in the blazing light. Just enough to make out the port of a vast city. All around are stone fortifications and trading ships and a curious crowd gathering below. They are lowered to a trough in the middle of a bustling harbour, and to the delight of onlookers are told to undress and wash. Still scowling from the sun, Monroe is happy to relieve himself of the now tattered wretched rags and fills his lungs with air, drinking to his thirst. They are surrounded by spearmen in black faces, turban and cloak, thick belts around their waists filled with daggers and ornate pistols. As his vision returns, he observes his surroundings. They are in the Arabian world, presumably Africa. People are dressed in long flowing robes, their hair covered in cotton headdress. The buildings are flat-roofed mud dwellings and in every direction there's a skyline of onion-shaped buildings. Each prisoner is tossed some rags to wear and a blanket. As Monroe puts them on, he's interrupted by a large, reddish-brown-skinned man with leathery complexion and dark, piercing eyes set narrowly on his face. His head is wrapped in a magnificent blue shroud. His hand darts out, clutching him firmly by the chin. It smells like jasmine and is adorned by a splendid ring. He holds Monroe steady as his companions chain his ankles to the man next to him. Then another man approaches, He's one of the Corsairs who took their ship. He points out to the minerve out in the harbor and then points to some of the other members of the crew. With his other hand, the man in blue forces his mouth open to check his teeth. He then examines his arms and legs, pinching his flesh. Then, pulling back Monroe's ragged tunic, inspects the bullet wound in his shoulder, poking it to see if he will flinch. Satisfied with his examination, he moves on to the next set of shackles. Monroe looks at the procession that has been unloaded from the ship. In addition to the ones he recognizes from his crew, there are several men, women, and children. Some of them Africans, some of them Europeans... All of them now. Slaves. At the crack of a whip, they are marched two by two through the narrow streets of the city, following a train of camels and pack animals. They pass marketplaces, mosques, shops, gawking onlookers, and a group of boys who throw rocks at them as they pass. The moment the whip man is out of earshot, the African man that Monroe is chained to speaks in a low voice. you an Englishman. American, mutters Monroe, surprised by the sound of his own voice. Me too, replies the man, born in Virginia. Monroe is taken aback, but silenced again by the crack of a whip. They turn a corner to the main road, and to the jarring side of a long line of wretched slaves, waddling in the other direction with heavy baskets of stone on their backs. Their faces are lifeless, white with dust, and their bodies broken under the weight. Men, women, young and old, and from every faith and nationality, their hair in dark matted clumps and stiffened locks of tarnished straw. One by one, James Monroe looks into their sullen resign for a sign of life, seeing nothing but the ghostly visages of broken souls. Monroe speaks again. It seems soon we'll be joining them. You are already one of them, he replies grimly. The sailors will probably die in the oars of ships and then women will do domestic work. The pretty ones at least. And those awaiting ransom? Uh, these Berbers are all business. They like to keep their reputation. Soon they reached the city gates. The line leads out towards a limestone quarry, dotted with countless hands tapping at the stone face. And when the opportunity arises again, Monroe speaks. I'm James, he says to his companion. Cato, replies the man. Tell me, Cato, how does a Negro man from Virginia? come to be on an African slave ship. Same way as you, I suppose. He pauses for a moment. I was born a slave, but I've been a free man for years. I earned my freedom fighting for the British. I dare say we uh, have likely faced in battle, replies Monroe. After independence, I joined the Loyalists and settled in Nova Scotia. Later, with the help of abolitionists, we moved to Sierra Leone, where I was captured again. The whip cracks again, and Monroe and his companion continue on their slow, sad march. How different our lives have been, sighs Monroe, and yet our fate is the same. They now enter the quarry, where... Scores of slaves are packing stones into baskets and loading them onto their backs. And they are corralled towards a dark mine opening in the hillside. And before entering, Cato speaks. "'I know nothing of fate,' he says sternly. "'You may think that you have once fought for your freedom, James, though it didn't include mine. "'You may feel more kin to the men with the whips than the ones in chains.' but we are now bound by more than just chains. Once a man has gained his freedom, he can never again be enslaved, and I intend to fight for mine again. James Monroe, taking in the horrors around him, can scarcely imagine what awaits him in the darkness of the cavern. All he knows is that all those who leave it do so with sunken eyes broken souls, crushed under rocks, thrashed by whips, and starved to despair. And in the last bit of African sun, before they crouch down into the foul darkness, Cato turns and looks him in the eyes, the way that no black man had ever done before that day, and says to him these words that give him the hope and the will to survive. We are all brothers, says Cato. We are all brothers now. And so he went, dear listener, into the darkness of the mine, no more or less willing than any other before him. And for how long? An eternity, perhaps. James Monroe. A learned man of good Virginian stock, a hero of the revolution, founding father to a nation, and future president of the United States, reduced to a wretched slave at the hands of pirates, vestiges of an ancient civilization. But there is hope for his soul. His fate is in the hands of capable men, each with his own score to settle. A cunning entrepreneur, a powerful French general, the President of the United States, and a shacklemate with an eye on his freedom. What happens next is left to the imagination.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host.
2: What you just heard was a story by Tristan Verboven from the Twilight Histories podcast. If you want to hear more, please head on over to the Twilight Histories. We explore many different worlds, some familiar, some totally exotic. If you want something like what you heard today, I'd recommend starting with an episode called Cato's War. It takes place in an alternate history of the Civil War, where the Confederates won. You will explore what it means to be a slave. I'm Jordan Harbour from the Twilight Histories podcast, signing out. Or should
5: I say, we will meet again shortly. Utterly captivating and thank you again to Jordan Harbour, the big cheese over there at Twilight Histories uh, for suggesting to us that we put to our members on on our Facebook group three great alternative history scenarios that they would then dramatise for us and I think we can all agree that they've done a great job. In the next two weeks I am going to get back on with my regular schedule regarding Ten American presidents, and you will have the election of 1960, and then before the end of February, we should have part two of Reagan. What I have to do though is uh, promote my conference intelligent speech. I think a few of you will know that I've been doing this now for a couple of years. We did start this in 2019, and we had a physical conference actually in New York. Very obviously, last year uh, we couldn't have a physical conference, but basically, what it is. I get together 30 to 40 different podcasters and online now you can basically go on and log on and enjoy presentations from your favorite history and media podcasters. Also going to include a few YouTubers uh, this year. What happens is they can present for up to 40 minutes, of which 20 minutes is Q and A. So if you're watching along, and uh, you really wanted to pose a question to a specific podcaster, you have that opportunity. So, uh, tickets for Intelligent Speech Spring 2020, because we are going to do another one later on this year, can be purchased at intelligentspeechconference.com. So, intelligentspeechconference.com. Go there. The tickets, early bird tickets, are twenty dollars. Uh, this year, we actually uh, our keynote speaker is David Crowther, of the History of England. And there will be uh, new podcasters coming onto the roster up until we go live. So that is going to be Saturday, April the 24th. it's going to start at 10 a.m. Eastern, which is 7 a.m. Pacific and 3 p.m. London time. Now, for those who are in a bit of the world which is um, inhospitable for... We will be um, giving members-only feeds. If you bought a ticket, you will be able to watch the feeds basically at your leisure afterwards as well. So Intelligent Speech is happening on Saturday, April the 24th at 10 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific and 3 p.m. London time. Go to intelligentspeechconference.com to sign up for that. Uh, Very lastly, I have to say thank you to our first three patreons i did say a couple of uh, editions ago you know i'm going to go back onto patreon and if i can get up to uh three hundred dollars per month i will commit to doing shows per month now the first patreon is a one luke baxter now i know luke very well luke very cheeky of you but but thank you for that also i like to thank jason mccauley and scott who've also decided to contribute to 10 American presidents because they would like uh, me to produce the shows monthly. I'm completely up for doing that, uh, but I just need to make sure that the amount of time that I spend on these things, at least there's some level of recompense. So again, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Jason. And thank you, Luke. If you'd like to go and join them and go and see what the members perks are, go on to patreon.com. Find 10 American presidents over there and uh, please sign up and donate. See you all again in approximately two weeks' time for the election of 1960. Bye bye.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen